Helo a chroeso i bodlediad yr Academy Genedlaethol ar gyfer arweinyddiaeth a ddysgol yng Nghymru. Podlediad sy'n rhannu materion ac arferion arweinyddiaeth allweddol ar draws y sector addysg yma yng Nghymru ac yn rhyngwladol. Hello and welcome to the podcast from the National Academy for Educational Leadership in Wales, a podcast that shares key leadership issues and practices across the education sector here in Wales and internationally. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, the National Academy for Educational Leadership's podcast is being recorded via Zoom. We apologise for any issues with the audio. I'm Tegwan Ellis. I'm the Chief Executive of the National Academy for Educational Leadership, and it's a great pleasure to see so many of you logged on this morning to listen to our guest speaker, Professor Alma Harris. So, Vesli, Heb Oidi Amhesach, without further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest speaker, Professor Alma Harris, to present to us this morning. Thank you, uh, Tegwin. Boradar uh, and good morning, everyone. Uh, but wherever you are in Wales or, or further uh, afield, it's a huge pleasure and honour to be here this morning uh, to give this uh, 40-minute input uh, in the Leadership Unlocked series. And I'm, I'm really grateful to the National Academy for Education Leadership in Wales for inviting me to speak on, on this theme of system leadership the power and potential of leadership within, between, and across the system. Now, when Tegwin asked me to come and present uh, at this, in this series, she said I could be <clears throat> provocative and I could be controversial. Well, in that case, uh, fasten your seatbelts because I'm going to be both of those. Most of you who know me will understand that I'm not the sort of person who is shy in coming forward with uh, controversy and also some challenging ideas. The way this is going to work is I'm going to talk about system leadership, but within the context of system change. And I'll explain a little bit about why I feel that system leadership should be a driver for uh, system change and improvement, not just in Wales, but more globally. So if I can start by uh, highlighting our current predicament, I guess, even so, even more so during COVID. Uh, there, there are two things that people complain about con- continually, it seems to me. The one is about the way things are, um, the way the weather is, the way that things are during COVID. But the other thing they also complain about is change, too much change. Uh, we want things to, to remain, go back to normal. And I think this is a sort of uh, a challenge when we think about system level change, because both of these true. People want things to remain as they are, but at the same time, there's a preoccupation with system level change and bringing about improvement. As Michael Fullan said, and of course he's right, uh, there is no improvement without change, but not all change leads to improvement. So we know that systems don't improve or transform themselves without some sort of change. And I'm gonna focus upon how we bring about change in the system next. But here's the sort of controversial point. So much reform, so little change. You can go to any country in the world uh, and you'll see a whole swathe of policies around educational reform and educational change. But the question is how much of that policy noise 
reaches the classroom in terms of changing practice. And the answer to that question is relatively little. And that's not because the policies are not well thought through. It's not because, in a sense, there is a, um, a resistance to some of those policies, although that could be the case. It's the fact that uh, the reform is overwhelming and it's probably too fast and, and too much too soon. So if you could hold in your heads the fact that there is a huge amount of reform around the world, but still relatively little change in practice. And there's a discontinuity between the policy and the practice. And how do we bridge that gap is something I'll be talking about uh, in this session. If we think about why education reform fails, well, there's a whole raft of reasons uh, why this happens. And it's, it's, no, it's not one of these, I think it's the combination of these that get us to a point where there's so much change and uh, you know, so much reform, so little practical change where it matters most in the classroom. We see a lot of convoluted policies. You know, policies don't come <laughs> singularly, they come together. And sometimes for busy practitioners in schools, it's, it's hard to work out which, which policy is the most important at, at any one time. I mean, here in Wales, we've got a, a major reform in the shape of a new curriculum, and that is a huge policy shift for us here. Um, and sorting out which parts of that huge reform matters most is, I guess, a, a central preoccupation for teachers and leaders in schools. Sometimes it's about bad timing. The policy could be fabulous. The policy could be well thought through. The policy could be clear and important, but the timing is wrong. I mean, COVID is an example of bad timing. <laughs> we wouldn't want to introduce anything new uh, during COVID times because schools are not able and ready to cope with uh, the change uh, in the current circumstances. I think a third issue, and this is one that is very clear when we look at systems across the world, it's to do with the capacity within the system to deliver. Uh, it's great to have these bright, shiny policies, but actually, you know, if, if teachers and leaders and other parts of the system are feeling, you know, pressurized and don't have the capacity to give that policy what it needs, then there's an issue of limited capacity. Where most policy fails is not in the, uh, in the initiation, it's actually in the implementation. Most good policies dissolve when it comes down to putting it into practice. And if there is no implementation strategy, the chances are that policy will just simply fade away into, into the distance. So the big message, I think, for, for all systems, including the Welsh system, is there has to be an implementation strategy. And in a way, if you haven't got an implementation strategy, do not pass go with the policy because it's, it's destined to fail. So an implementation strategy is uh, centrally important. I think there are some other fa factors that play in here. You've got to have buy-in from the profession for any educational policy to work. And if there is no buy-in, if, if uh, teachers and leaders simply feel this is just another policy, and if they wait a little while, another policy will come along, then you don't get the buy-in, you don't get the commitment, you don't get, I guess, the passion for that policy implementation. The last two, um, change fatigue. Um, yeah, and most education systems at any one time are a bit fatigued by the, the amount of change, the pace of change. And I think policymakers need to think a little bit uh, more about the way in which they introduce 
new ideas, uh, new directives into a system that is tired. Uh, most systems right now, most education systems around the world are tired because of COVID and the stresses that uh, that has placed inevitably on leaders and teachers in schools and continues to do so actually. In systems, you also get what we call distractions. In other words, if a new policy arrives, a new curriculum arrives, and then other things start to distract people from the core purpose uh, of, of that policy. And I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. But it's a combination of all these things uh, that gives us the reasons why education reform fails. So in a way, what policymakers need to be doing, and I challenge them to do this, is to think about all these things before introducing anything new and addressing some of these things that really do get in the way of any new policy being fully implemented and fully delivered. So let me be controversial. I said I would be. Um, let's talk about distractions. Now, most of you will know that I'm not a huge fan of PISA. And there's a whole raft of reasons why I'm not a huge fan. And uh, you might be a huge fan of PISA, but I'm not. But and so I lay my cards on the table very, very uh, quickly and, and soon in this conversation. One of the reasons that I find PISA uh, somewhat problematic is, is the fact that I think it's a distraction. Um, the beauty contest uh, continues around the world and we get a whole a league table of where countries are. Now, that's a major distraction because at that moment in time, every Minister of Education is preoccupied with where Wales is, where Scotland is, where England is in this league table. It's a distraction because it takes time, energy and resource away from the day-to-day -day reality of getting the job done in schools and in school systems. And let me ask you a question, you know, where was PISA during COVID? Did it help us? Did it come along and solve our problems? And the answer is it's been completely silent. There has been, the OECD have been vocal around uh, COVID, but it does raise a question, doesn't it? If PISA and that whole process didn't help us during the worst crisis we've ever witnessed in our education system, then do we really need it? So here's a relationship between PISA performance and, uh, and ice cream consumption. And this basically shows you that you could do anything with data. Um, and it also sort of brings home the point that correlation isn't causation. In other words, there may be a statistical relationship but it doesn't mean that one thing leads to another. So if you eat more ice cream, it doesn't mean that you get better in PISA. And you can see that that may be an extreme example, but it does raise questions about those correlations when it's focused on other aspects of education. I think one of the, and I'll leave PISA behind in a moment, but one of the things I think we need to think seriously about is whether PISA is the race that we want to be in as an education system. Now, this quote is from the Minister of Education in Singapore um, in 2017. Singapore, as you know, is almost always in the top five of PISA, if you look at those league tables. But he said, during a conference, we've been winning the wrong race. And that quote was taken down, you will not be able to find it anywhere because obviously that was very controversial for him to say that. But I think it leads us to reflect upon whether we are in the right race. What is the right race for Wales? Is it being top of PISA or in the top 10? 
or is it being an equitable system that is innovative and transforming our system for the young people in the future? So that's a question, I think. What race do we want to be in? And what educational race do we want to win as a country? This takes me to um, the system. I mean, the one thing, of course, to say is there isn't one system, is there? There are many systems within an education system, many subsystems. But I'm talking about the system here in, in, in its macro sense, in its big sense. And I think the answer to the what, what race do we want to be in is that I think as an education system in Wales and maybe elsewhere in the world, we need to focus on the right things not just the latest things. And as I've highlighted, you know, there are policies that come and go and we, we get preoccupied with, well, this is the new thing, this is the latest thing. And we forget that the moral compass is, well, what's the right thing to do for an education system? And for me, the right thing is uh, excellence through equity, not excellence and equity, because then equity becomes a second order principle, but achieving excellence through equity. And these are the hallmarks of some of our best systems. If we were to superimpose equity on our PISA league tables, our countries would shift position dramatically. So again, the question is, what do we want uh, for our education system? And I would argue that an equitable system is also a system that brings forward excellence and good performance. And that equity should be at the heart of any system not an afterthought, um, and, and certainly it's the right thing to be focusing on. And when we talk about the right things, well, you know, Michael Fullen has written a lot about this, uh, the guru of educational change. Um, but in a sense, he highlights and hits home exactly what the right drivers are. And whether you like the word drivers or not, I think they're the right principles. You know, we've talked about the importance of capacity building. A system cannot improve itself if it is running on, on empty, it just can't, okay? So you have to build capacity within the system. And I think one of the things that the, the National Academy for Education leadership's capacity within the system, through its associates program, through the work that it does, and that has to be a very positive thing uh, in terms of looking at system transformation and change. We know the importance of professional learning, and I will come to this at the end of the talk, because again, I'm gonna be controversial about this, I'm not 100% sure that the professional learning we have and the professional learning we get is really what we need. And I think we need to take a long, hard look at professional learning post-COVID or if we, if, we, if we are post-COVID, but certainly ask ourselves the question, is this still relevant now for a teaching profession that has gone through such turbulence and such change? Teacher-informed change, you know, I was asked the question, what would I say to a minister of education in another country? And I would say, you've trusted teachers during COVID to keep our schools open. You've trusted leaders to keep our schools open. Surely you can trust our, the profession to help you with uh, reform and change. In other words, the voice of the profession should be informing policy, should be informing uh, reform and change within any education system. And finally, that takes me to leadership, because teachers are leaders every day in their classrooms. But I'm talking about, I guess, the leadership of the system. And that, that brings me to the core purpose of this talk, which is around system leadership. Um, and this is a book that Michelle, and I, Michelle Jones and I have written, uh, edited rather, 
Um, and we've taken examples of countries around the world. Now, what happens is you usually get Singapore, Finland, Ontario, the usual suspects are usually uh, presented in a book like this. But we, we, we wanted to go to other countries, countries where normally you don't hear about their reform processes. And there are three chapters in this book on Wales because we think that the Welsh education reform process is quite uh, remarkable in its scope, in its scale, in its purpose. We are a small country, but I think we are punching well above our weights in terms of our reform aspirations. But one of the things that we saw when we looked across these very different countries who perform very differently on PISA is that in every country, no matter where they perform on PISA, good things are happening in all systems, everywhere. Um, and the real challenge, I think, is to locate that good practice and to make it system-wide. And this is where system leadership comes in, because how do you do that? Who's going to do that? Who's going to be the catalyst? Who's going to make those connections? Well, the answer to that question is um, system leaders working within, between and across the system under the right conditions. I'll come back to the right conditions in a moment, uh, can support the scale up. So in other words, we need a different sort of leadership if you want to make those connections within the system so that this good practice can be scaled up and become the practice throughout the system. But it's important to remember this, irrespective of your performance on PISA, that doesn't mean that that's the, the demarcation point for your performance everywhere. Good things are happening in every system, however they perform on PISA. So we know that leadership matters. And I think for most people in schools, universities, any part of the education system, leading through COVID times has felt a little bit like this. It's about um, not having a blueprint, a map, and facing the daily challenges uh, of unpredictability and uncertainty, particularly for our leaders. Think about leadership. It is second only to classroom teaching as an influence on student learning. So if there were any levers you could pull within a system, you would certainly pull the teaching and learning lever. But after that, you would invest heavily in leadership right across the system because the combination of teaching and learning and leadership are really most, the most powerful things we can do within our system to improve student learning. So the short summary of that is that leadership matters. It matters hugely, and it is a common denominator factor within any, within any system, particularly our most successful systems. So let me just rehearse a little bit about what we know, because it's important, I think, to always come back to the evidence base. And I guess I would say that as a researcher, but so often when we talk about leadership, you know, if you go into any you know, airport bookshop, if, if you're allowed into airports, um, you will see there's lots of books on leadership. And, and a lot of it is a commentary, a personal commentary, a sort of, I did it my way. And you'll also see what I call adjectival leadership, where someone's taken an adjective and put it in front of leadership and somehow it's made a new, new leadership idea. So that's why I return to the evidence. You know, what do we actually know? What can we say with a degree of certainty? And what we can say uh, with a degree of certainty is that leadership is the key to school and system transformation. There is not an example anywhere around the world, unless you can tell me otherwise, 
where a school or a system, an organization, a business has turned itself around, has transformed itself without leadership being right in the center and the heart of that transformation. Now, there's a supplementary question here, but what sort of leadership? And I think I'll argue here that what we need is a different form of leadership from the hierarchical uh, approaches we see in most systems. We know that uh, collaborative, connected and collective leadership is a powerful lever for change. And I wish I'd said this, and I, and I didn't, but I will actually uh, share it with you. And you've probably heard it before. And that's the very simple sentence, but profound thought that isolation is the enemy of improvement. Isolation is the enemy of improvement. But when we talk about system leadership, here's, here's the controversial point. It is inherently disruptive. So if you want system leaders and system leadership to just reinforce the status quo, then please think again, because system leadership is all about disruption. It's all about innovation. It's all about connecting parts of the system that were never connected before. But please don't think the system leaders are there just as another layer of leadership in the system just to reinforce existing practice or to keep things the way they are. So I think the first big message here is system leadership is inherently disruptive. Now, where does this come from? Well, I was privileged to undertake a piece of work for the National Academy for Education and Leadership on reviewing the evidence base on system leaders and system leadership. And that report sits uh, on their website. We also produced an article based on that report, which we published uh, in a journal, because uh, that's what researchers do. But the important point is we tried to map out what this terrain really looked like. And when Tegwin asked me to do this, I thought, great, this is a fantastic thing to do. And then I took a quick look at the evidence. And to say it was a bit daunting was an understatement. Not only is there a lot that's been written about system leaders, system leadership, but the whole uh, area is huge. So the process looked a little bit like this. And for anybody out there who's ever done a piece of research, ever done a literature review, ever done a master's or an ed or a doctorate, you will recognize this process where essentially you are not just confused, but you are rudderless within this literature because it's just so convoluted and so vast and so confusing. My job really was to make some sense of the evidence and present it in a, a neat report. And when you read that report, uh, you will forget the fact that the process looked like this. But for those people out there doing any sort of research, you have my sympathies because sometimes the literature looks rather confusing, convoluted, and really difficult to navigate. But navigate it, I did. Now, here's a couple of things I think to really think about. And this, these are some of the themes that came out of that literature. The first thing is that system leaders are catalysts for change and innovation. So when I said earlier, they're inherently disruptive. The whole point of a system leader is to, uh, to be a catalyst. In other words, to bring about a level of disruption, ho hopefully not too much disruption, but a level of disruption within this system so that things can happen, things can change, things can be done in a different way. 
So system leadership is the practice. And I'll come back to this again and again. It's not about a role. It's about the practice. So if, if you're a system leader and you have a job description, then that's not system leadership. That is something else. I think the important thing about the system leaders is that they are, it's the practice of mobilizing change within the system. But this is the other controversial point. If you were a leader in the system, and I'm a leader in the system, in the, un- in the university system, I suppose, you're not necessarily a system leader. Because if we're all uh, leaders in the system, then we're all system leaders, then what does system leadership actually mean? It, mean, it doesn't mean anything. And there's a very distinctive I think, definition around system leadership, which I'll come to in a moment. So is everyone in the system a leader? Uh, Yeah, probably at some level. They've all got influence, but they're not all system leaders because there's a discrete set of characteristics and actions and responsibilities um, that these system leaders have. Just to return to the the piece that I wrote, I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but in terms of sorting out the literature and the evidence base, there was a real difference between what I call the macro and the micro level. At the macro level, system leadership is talked about almost in a normative way by saying it's a jolly good thing, uh, and of course it is, but there's, there's not the sort of grounding in the practice when you look at the theoretical work around this. So it's around organizational change. It's about change at scale. Um, So the macro level perspective on system leadership is all about the collective change, the system level change, the transformation. Um, It's the bigger picture thinking, which we clearly need. But when it comes down to it, it's the micro level where the rubber hits the road. It's great to have the macro level be with organizational change and system theories and, and all of that and system thinking. But the question is, how do, you, how do you actually make that happen in practice? What do you do on a Monday if you're a system leader? Well, the literature would say that you, will, you do need individual agency within the system to make this happen. You know, you can't just self-combust into system leadership. It's never going to happen. You need people on the ground who have the skill, the will, and the persistence to do this. And system leadership is ultimately about lateral engagement. If we think about leadership, uh, normally we think about hierarchy. You know, there's the head teacher, deputy head teacher, middle leader, and, and so on. And I'm not talking about system leaders fitting into that hierarchy. In fact, I think that would be a huge mistake. System leaders, I think, operate laterally. They're not part of the hierarchical system, but they're out there in the wider education system, making those connections from their, within their context um, and, and doing, I guess, this work within their own sphere of influence. I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So here's the question. Can anyone be a system leader? And the answer to that question is no. Because the literature would suggest that there's a particular skill set that these people need to have in order to make those connections, in order to be a catalyst within the system, in order to have the personal and professional uh, standing to, to influence others to work together in a different way. Now, these are some of the things that the literature suggests are important. Change agentry, just another bit of jargon, I suppose. But essentially, it's about being an agent of change. That's probably a better way to do it. 
to advocate for something, to stand for something, to be an activist. So you can see the system leaders are, are far from your conventional leader. They are there to be disruptors in the system, to create, I, I guess, um, some new opportunities to do things differently. And I hate the phrase think outside the box, but I'll use it anyway. But it gives you a sense of them being at the cutting edge of change and development within a system. Now, if you look at other systems, and I have looked at other systems, the other big message that comes across is, of course, it looks different in different systems. And inevitably, the contextual and cultural parameters of any system will define how this looks. And systems are taking very different approaches to system leadership. And I've worked, as you will probably know, uh, with the Scottish education system. And one of the things I think is interesting is how close Scotland and Wales now are in terms of their system uh, and how we are so far now away from England with its particular levers of change. So every system is different. System leadership will look different in different contexts. There is no blueprint, um, but I think the important thing is to remember the core principles of system leadership and the disruptive change that every system needs in order to keep it moving. So just to, to bring this to a conclusion then, what, do, what does system leadership require? Well, it needs a clear model of engagement. As I said before, you can't just self-combust into system leadership. So we need some model, some guidance, so that the system leaders within our system uh, know exactly what they are, are doing and what they're responding to. Clarity about purpose, buy-in, quick wins, and here's the controversial point, impact, impact measures from the start. What we see so often is that people decide to look at the impact at the end of a development and do a retrospective look back. And I think the impact measures have to be built in so we know how well our system leaders are doing and we know the difference that they're making within the system. In terms of the conditions, I said earlier, under the right conditions, System leadership is a very fragile thing and you wouldn't introduce it into a system, you wouldn't support it within a system if that system was struggling in any way. So the conditions for system leadership include authentic collaboration. I mean, my good friend Andy Hargreaves, who you can see there on the screen, uh, talks about, you know, contrived collegiality. And, and we see a lot of that in the name of collaboration. So I think we need authentic collaboration. It requires strong relationships within the system. And I guess we're fortunate in Wales and in Scotland and in other systems that are smaller, that we have those relationships. In bigger systems, it's difficult, more difficult to establish strong uh, relationships. Shared language, you know, I, again, looking at the literature, a lot of the writing is just, we're just talking past each other because you're using these terms system leader system leadership interchangeably there's no common shared language trust you know Stephen Colby Jr wrote this brilliant book and I would commend it to you and it's called the speed of trust and it just reminds us that no system anywhere in the world can do very much without trust being in the DNA of the system uh, trust is critical um, and one of the things I think we've seen in Wales one of the very positive things is the way that, that the new curriculum has been co-constructed by the profession, and that has required high degrees of professional trust. 
So I think in Wales, we are at the point where system leadership can be um, very, a very positive part of reform and change. There are some barriers. And again, controversially, you know, here are the things that are going to get in the way. Um, and it's all to do with people's uh, boundary management and their sort of silo mentality. In other words, this is my terrain and I'm not going to share it. I'm not going to breach it. No one can come in. And I think that's really at the heart of system failure, that the structures that we set up become barriers and boundaries to doing things that are the right things because there's self-interest, fear and mistrust. And I think in a sense, unless we address this within any system, the chances of us getting uh, leadership at the system level to do that innovative and transformational work I've been talking about is relatively uh, limited. So it's widely distributed. I guess I talk about distributed leadership, so I have to get this in, that system leadership inevitably is distributed. The important thing here is that the practice of leadership matters more than the role. Um, in other words, I guess these system leaders are, are, are basically or should be relatively invisible within our system because it's the practice that matters, not them. It's the, it's the practice that matters, not the role. And in terms of collaboration, I think another controversial point is just working together isn't collaboration. Collaboration requires a very sophisticated set of skills. So as these system leaders go in to work with others, it's not just simply cooperation, although that looks like collaboration sometimes. It's about collaborating deeply on the things that will really make a difference and change things in the classroom. My time is nearly up, so I'm going to end on some very controversial points. Um, and I guess uh, I, I will disclaim the National Academy from these uh, comments because they are my own, and I'll, I'll make that very, very clear. The first is, you know, we need a fundamental rethink of leadership development in Wales uh, and in other countries. You know, we are locked into leadership development that follows the key stages of someone's career. And that is fine, but we need to think much more broadly than that. Uh, we need to think about leadership development as not being an age and stage thing, because quite frankly, teachers are leaders in our schools right now. They have influence in their classroom, they have influence over others. So to get them to wait and until they become a middle leader and then give them the training seems to me to be uh, a little bit sort of worrying. Uh, I guess, to put it sort of in that catch term. I think we need to think about leadership differently. I think we need to, to think about leadership in its broadest, most inclusive sense and move away from just simply training people for the role and moving people into leadership roles like the system leadership positions where they are disruptive, innovative and not necessarily locked into I'm the middle leader I'm a senior leader, I'm a head teacher. There's more in the system that we can bring if we've got a broader notion of leadership. Second controversial point, and I've alluded to this already, I think we need to also get rid of some of our tired and increasingly irrelevant leadership CPD. We need to take a long, hard look at the professional learning, the professional development that uh, we have within the system. And ask two questions. Is it still fit for purpose? 
And secondly, is it equipping our leaders to make the sort of difference in their schools? And if it isn't, let's do something different. Let's do something way more imaginative. And here, controversially, let's ask the profession what they want and what they need. We need to release people, I think. And and this doesn't mean um, just the senior leaders within our system. But we need to release those with the potential to lead. You know, it seems odd to me that you've got to wait 20 years to show your potential to lead. And I think, you know, some of our young teachers, some of the some of the teachers that we have on our initial teacher education program at Swansea are just fantastic. They've got the energy, the enthusiasm, the drive, the commitment, and they are leaders in our system. So let's not lock them in. Let's give them the opportunity to lead. System leaders shouldn't have a job description. I think if they do, I think we need to start again. Uh, They they certainly need a a direction. They certainly need some sense of the core principles. They certainly need to understand their own agency. But please, not a job description, not another another list of things that these people should do. And leadership agency over formal role opposition. As I said earlier, this is about lateral leadership within the system, not necessarily the hierarchical leadership. And here... (laughs) The final point, you know, if you're going to, if, if this is going to happen, it's got to be leadership without ego. It can't be all about me. It can't be all about my role. System leadership is, is basically leadership without ego. It's giving something back to the system so that that system uh, can improve. Finally, it involves connecting parts of the system that weren't connected before. And I think if the associates are doing anything, it's this. And I love, I love this image because I think it encapsulates everything about system leaders. It's about connecting and it's about building that lateral capacity through that connection within the system. Thank you uh, very much for listening. I hope that's been you know, helpful, provocative, irritating. If it, if it engenders some conversations in the breakout rooms, then I'll be very happy indeed. Christoph. Nol i chi gyd wi'n siŵr bod y trafodaeth i fod yn un hynod ddiddorol yn y grwpiau trafod ac wi yn barod wedi gweld ambell i gwestiwn um, sydd wedi dod nôl ac mae barod yma uh, i ateb y cwestiwn hynny. Just wanted to say uh, welcome back. Um, I'm sure the discussions in uh, the breakout groups have been uh, uh, passionate, informed and extremely uh, interesting. And I know from a number of questions that have already come back that um, uh, you're, you're dying to ask Alma some, some key questions. Just add, honey, os oes ganddoch chi unrhyw gwestiwn ydych chi'n dymuno gofyn o yn Gymraeg, plis nodwch hynny yn y chat os gwelwch chi dda, ac mi fyddai un hapus wedyn i gyfieithu hynny i Alma wrth i'n mynd yn ei blaen. So if anybody does have a Welsh medium question that they would like to ask in Welsh, please do that, pop it in the chat, and I'd be more than happy after that to translate it for Alma um, to, to be able to answer. Ond uh, heb oed i pellach, na'n i at y cwestiwn cyntaf, without sort of further ado, let's move on to the first question, and this is a question from Rhian Milton, and it involves um, in relation to the wider system support. So Rhian? Yeah, so our group had um, a, a great discussion, actually, and we had a real varied group, which was really great. We had Florence in the room as well from across the um, the um, in Italy there, which was lovely. So that perspective was really nice. But our question for you, Alma, really was about we were talking about how the wider system can support us 
we feel like we've got all of these ideas and innovation happening um, across Wales within our schools. And it's a really exciting time. But sometimes we can get frustrated with how difficult it is to just move something even a millimeter within the system. So I think Mike framed our question really well and said, how does the wider system support us to be systems leaders? Yeah, and, and that, Rian, that's, that's it. a great question. And I think in my presentation, I highlighted some frustration with the system not enabling people uh, like yourself and, and others to really move as quickly as you can go. And I think we, what we need to do is, is to ask ourselves a very hard question. Is the system getting in the way of progress? And if so, what part of the system do we now need to dismantle to allow uh, movement and that, that lateral capacity I talked about to be built in the system. Um, I mean, let's be blunt about it. If, if, if things are getting in your way, Rian, and if things are getting in the way of others like you in terms of innovating, changing things, then surely we need to look very carefully at those things and, and probably remove them. Not everything in the system is, is there to enable uh, great leadership to happen. So. Let, let's let's look hard at those things that are getting in your way and remove them. Thanks, Alma. Diolch, diolch, Rian. Thank you very much, Rian. Uh, following up now with a question from Denley Jones. So I don't know if Denley we place up on the screen. There we go. Denley, over to you. Oh, thanks very much, Trevor, and uh, hello, everyone. Uh, so the question I had, I found the, your talk Alma very interesting. Um, and it made me reflect on my leadership role and um, whether I am um, often a system leader. And, but one question I uh, had was, how do you go about uh, creating buy-in with your staff for, for, for major change? I was just interested in some sort of practical strategies that you've found um, uh, useful when you've collaborated with um, other colleagues in other secondary schools around Wales. Yeah, again... Thanks, Danny. A very, a very good question. And as I said earlier, you know, buy-in is is so important when you are bringing about any sort of change uh, at any sort of level. And I think when we think about um, teachers and we think about the profession, I mean, they buy into things that they feel will make a difference to their practice and, and their classrooms. So I think the more practical um, the strategy, the more relatable the strategy to the professions, uh, professionals rather, then the, the easier it is to get buy-in. I mean, the, the worst way to stop buy-in is to produce policies that just have no relationship to practice and seem to be disconnected from the real world of teaching and learning. So my own view is you get buy-in when it matters to teachers and they can see there's going to be a very positive outcome for their learners because ultimately that's their bottom line. You know, the learner is their bottom line. So if it matters to the learner, then it'll matter to the teachers. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Denley. Yeah, very young. Um, we've got a question from Hugh Cripp. Hugh, I'll hand the over to you. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, good morning, everyone, and good morning, Alman. Thank you uh, for your presentation. Uh, I think uh, the first the first point really touched on something that we we were talking. About. We talked a lot about system leadership and how perhaps. Uh, for all the distractions that we we have, um, schools have been sort of more self-sustaining, if you like, in the way that they've developed their own practices and leadership, uh, you know, development systems. You you mentioned that 
you know, the system could be in the way, really, and what needs to change in the system? Because our question was more related to how systems leadership and system leaders are allowed to flourish beyond the school and between schools as well. Um, and what role do you see perhaps there, take it, trying to identify that a little bit further, where you've got a national programme, we're also working within consortiums and we work within local authorities as well, uh, and where you think the, the solution could lie in any of that really to help system leaders develop beyond school settings? Yeah, I mean, Hugh, that's that's a very good question. Um, these are very hard questions, by the way, for me to answer, but because there is no simple solution, otherwise we'd have arrived at it. But what you talk about are the multiple structures that you work within, Hugh, and, and it seems to me that those multiple structures, particularly those in the middle tier, which is which is a particularly busy busy middle tier in Wales, um, could be way more aligned. And I think if we want schools to connect, collaborate and participate with other schools, I think that those organisations that you've just described also need to demonstrate and model that collaboration alignment. Because what you don't want are different messages coming into the school from, from different parts of the structure. So I, I get that. But the second part of your question was, you know, what can you do? Um, and it's, I think what system leaders do in schools is they're already doing it. They're already connecting with other schools. They're already networking, right? I think that during this pandemic, schools, uh, teachers, the profession have been the front line of um, ensuring that young people have kept on learning. So in a way, you have demonstrated, schools, the profession has demonstrated everything about system leadership in this pandemic. So connection, collaboration, participation, moving outside your school context, connecting with others um, is a form of system leadership. That's the lateral leadership that I was talking about. And there's, there's no implication here that schools are not re- already doing this. And they are already part of the system leadership that I've, that I've talked about and a very important part of that. Thank you very much, Hugh. Um, we're moving on now to, um, to Helen Jones. Um, of uh, Helen Jones be placed up on the screen. Uh, a question around external barriers, I think, isn't it, Helen? Yes, it is, yeah. Uh, hi, Alma. I've listened hi. to you speak several times. I have a massive intellectual crush on you. I'm saying this before <laughs> I ask my question, okay? <laughs> um, just to say, I think there's been massive frustrations uh, for, for people like me, secondary head teachers who serve a certain school, serving a certain demographic. Yeah. And I loved what you said in an ASCAL conference a couple of years ago, about equity and what you said today. And my question is, how can we achieve equity in a system where we still face barriers from external sources? And the example I want to give is is something close to your heart. Uh, I'm passionate about being a system leader and being a good system leader. Uh, And also talent spotting and working with organisations that can can give me that talent. Because what happens is, for example, uh, trying to become a partner school with Swansea ITE, the criteria was you had to be a green or a yellow or a school deemed good by Estin. And that's utterly frustrating for for me when it's such a narrow set of criteria. For me, the challenge is I can, I mean, we are systems leaders, we, we, we look for creative solutions. So in order for me to attract good maths, science, English teachers, 
I know from those middle class areas that tend to produce those green, yellow and outstanding Estin reports, I, I need to offer something quite special. We've had to advertise uh, PE and maths, PE and science, because there's a glut of those who will look to schools like mine. But it is challenging. I deliberately want to be provocative because I think that doesn't help schools like mine achieve equity. I need to produce teachers because when we do, we produce outstanding teachers. And I've got faculties outside of the narrow high, uh, key performance indicators criteria that are better than any of the faculties that I've worked in in the green schools. So I know it's a convoluted question, but that's part of it, of you know, this, this impact of that legacy of high, high stakes accountability. And it's taken a pandemic for people to see the worth in schools like mine and how much we prioritise well-being and relationships. So I know it's long winded, but that's a that's a workable example of why that is still a significant barrier to me to attract talent into my school so that we can de develop that capacity and so that I can develop other system leaders. Yeah, great. Thanks. Thanks, Helen. Um, it's nice to know somebody's got a crush on me, um, even an intellectual. <laughs> I'll take an intellectual crush any time. OK, <laughs> but um, listen, I mean. You know what, what you've just said is very close to my heart because, you know, the schools like yours working in some of the most disadvantaged, difficult areas are, are doing the heavy lifting of equity, let's be honest, um, with the communities. And, and sometimes the communities are part of the solution um, and sometimes they're not. OK, so, I mean, I completely get where you're coming from and I completely understand And one of the things that, that I've argued and continue to argue in conferences around the world is that you know the system can be part of the problem, and it can be uh, an increasingly part of the problem when it comes to schools like yours and young people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, we know that COVID uh, has shone a light on equity, inequity in a way that we, we can't look away anymore. We, we, we've seen it through COVID times. You know, some kids didn't have laptops, some parents weren't supported, some some children didn't come to didn't return to school. So I completely get where you're coming from. What we know, of course, about leadership in the most challenging context is that leadership is, is normally very strong, very good, and very compassionate because you don't go into a school like yours without a moral purpose. And my guess is that, Helen, you've got a deep moral purpose that shines through everything you do. Um, I don't know if I can say this uh, on, online, but I'll, I, I'll try and couch it in, in sort of terms that you'll understand. I think it's a shared frustration uh, around initial teacher education. And I guess one of my thoughts is this. How do we prepare teachers to come into schools like yours if they've never experienced a school like yours and the challenges and everything that you face on a daily basis? Um, you know, we've got to prepare them for education in the round, not just for certain schools in certain contexts. So I completely agree with you. Um, and I think that ha that's one structural barrier that I think has to change because ultimately, you know, it's not for some children. Education in Wales is not for some children in some areas. It should be for every child in every setting. And I firmly believe that. So let's make sure that our teachers are prepared to support every child in every setting. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Massive, massive crush now. Excellent. It's getting better every day. <laughs> I, 
was going to say, I, I suppose I should pre-warn the next question is, you don't need to preface your uh, question by stating as to whether you have an intellectual crush or not, but you're more than welcome to if you like. Um, I, there's so many questions coming in, and I think that's reflective of how um, your um, how, how, how your presentation has really um, um, developed some thinking and, and really sort of uh, created a bit of a debate in the rooms, which is brilliant. I'd like to come to a question from Tim Opie next. I think. Uh, hi, yeah, Tim Opie from the Welsh Local Government Association. I cover youth policy. So um, I, I said in the breakout room that uh, I, I sort of advocate on behalf of youth work and youth workers themselves advocate on behalf of young people. So if there's any agitated going on in the system it, it can come from youth work but um you know youth work is an important element of education albeit non-formal and informal learning um there are others um and my question is um around the new curriculum i think is an important role for youth work and other education providers and non-education providers at least it's not their raison d'etre then it might be um uh, supplementary to what they do or incidental um how do we harness uh their contribution to support schools in educating young people in 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 the broader context also that links with the assessment uh, regime that we have are we assessing the right things um i don't want to bring us into a, a, other sort of areas of debate but it might be worth considering um you know, certainly for some of the young people who are more disengaged, um, where academia may not be relevant to them at that point in time, but they might still be learning in other contexts. Yeah, th- thanks, thanks, Tim. And again, you know, these are all really important questions, and I don't have a, a blueprint answer, but I do have some reflections. And I think, you know, if the, if the new curriculum is about anything, it's about being a broad and balanced curriculum that, that is inclusive. And I think that has to be a really positive uh, dimension to what we're doing here in Wales. This inevitably raises issues about assessment and whether the assessment that we have are able to capture the learning that will go on in the new curriculum. And I think, again, that's a controversial issue. But I think we need to look very hard at the assessment processes and, and make some judgment calls about whether they remain fit for purpose for the new curriculum. But the point you made about youth workers, I think is, is, is critical because during COVID, we know that young people have suffered greatly in terms of their mental health, their well-being. And while schools have provided some support, um, you know, the, the youth workers in our system have also been the front line. And, and therefore, I can only see huge benefits for youth workers to be part of the new curriculum offer in the sense of offering their support, their expertise, their guidance, because young people come from very different backgrounds, as we've heard, with very different talents. I believe every child has got talent, by the way. Um, It's just that it might not be in 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 a conventional academic way. So we need to reach out to all young people in Wales. And I think that, yeah, youth workers are going to be a critical part of curriculum delivery and realization, but also, you know, the whole issue around young people's mental health and well-being and the work that you do, the frontline work that you do is, well, I, I, I can't say uh, how important that is enough. It's a shame it's taken COVID uh, for many to recognise that, but, uh, but absolutely, you know, youth workers have been 
knocking on doors where other professionals, for example, have been working behind screens, asking youth workers to knock on doors and, uh, as you say, check on the welfare of young people. But uh, but it, it, we need to remind ourselves as well that, you know, education is much broader than just schools. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, absolutely. And I've been talking about schools because that's what I know and what I write about. But I am completely aware that there are other professionals out there doing a terrific job, you know, knocking on doors, making sure the young people are safe, uh, talking to young people. And, and that has been such a pivotally important role to play, not just during COVID, but like I said about equity, it's shone a light on what's important and who's important uh, during these COVID times. Thank you, Tim. Much appreciated. Bringing up a, a really important and uh, uh, point that needs to be, I think, uh, fully considered not only in terms of uh, the last uh, year or so, but also, um, you know, how he can contribute centrally in the longer term. Um, I'm going to move on to a question from James, James Knight. Um, okay, James, over to you. Hi there. Morning, Alma. Morning. Thank you for your contributions this morning. It's been really helpful. Um, so you've mentioned, obviously, about system uh, leadership being about change and innovation. And yeah. uh, one of the things that uh, we've been considering in school here, obviously, is about assessment. Um, and But also slightly wider in terms of our self-evaluation, self-evaluation report, um, and how we can be really strategic about the decisions we're making in there. Because obviously, school improvement um, and our innovations have to go hand in hand and we need to make decisions that are strategic and prioritised in terms yeah. of knowing what parts of school life are going to make the biggest impact on pupil progress and their well-being. Uh, so just wondering if you've got any useful measurement tools to measure the quality <laughs> of uh, school improvement, but more specifically on system leadership. Yeah, well, I, I, I sort of wish I, I did have some in my back pocket that I could just share with you there, there James. But um, I, I think the important thing is to always ask yourself, you know, what's at the centre of your school improvement plan, right? And, and if you put the child at the centre of your school improvement plan, then in a sense, everything comes from that. And like I said about policies, you know, what's what's worth fighting for out there? What will you go to the wire for? Um and that will help you to focus, I think, on, on what matters most. And I, I think in terms of impact, one of the things that you can do is, is, is really to ask yourself a very simple question, but a profound one. And that is, if we, if we do this, what do we hope to see that's different in our classrooms as a result of this? What will change and how will we know? And in a sense, if you use that as the measure, if you use that as the barometer, then you can easily see the impact of your work and the parts of that plan that are really impacting on young people and the parts of that plan that are just filling up space. Oh, oh, James, thank you very much. Uh, so many, so many questions to ask. And uh, it's unfortunate that we perhaps won't have time to ask everyone, but we'll do our best to uh, get through um, the list that we have. Uh, I have a question from Diane Thwellin. Hiya, Alma. Um, during the breakout room, um, there was three special school leaders within our group and we were talking about training opportunities for special settings and um, how can we develop quality CPD for special school settings and um, one of the things that we were talking about was we have had to be really creative problem solvers um, when it comes to attracting teachers with the level of experience needed 
for special school settings. Um, we've really had to, you know, um, tweak our way of advertising because many times we advertise positions for teachers and nobody applies because of what we're looking for. Yeah. Um, we, we, we have teachers in the school from mainstream schools and really they are, they're getting taught on the job. So they are, they are receiving training in-house. So, yeah, the question is, um, the long and short of it is, how can we develop quality CPD to attract these um, teachers to our schools? Yeah, Diane, that, and that's a very, very good question. And, and you know, I've just undertaken a, a review of leadership right across Wales, and I can't disclose what we've found. But it, it is clear to me that the special school sector is, is probably not as, um, I'm going to put this, uh, is not served as well as other parts of the sector. And I think that that's a mistake. And I would prioritise, I think, uh, CPD for, for, for special education for schools like your, your own. Because in a way, without that training and without that preparation, like you just said, you have to do it in the school, but also... It's, it's also a means of attracting people to think about special education and being part of, you know, it, the amazing sort of work that you do with, with so many young people. So I guess my short answer is that I think that the current provision is insufficient and there should be um, way more training and support for those working in a special school setting because it is different. Some, some things are the same, but the context is very different and the, and the young people there are often vulnerable and different. Um, I remember that Chris Britton said in his program on his special school is we know what these children can't do. The important thing is to know what they can do. And that's what special, uh, that's what special these teachers actually focus upon. So the short answer is one of the ways I think that we could uh, improve the uh, provision for special for special schools is for people like yourself to be part of a conversation about exactly what is needed. As I said earlier, we have to ask the profession what they need and want in terms of professional learning, not just assume and give them what they think they need. Thank you, Diane. A really, really important question to be asked about a, a, an extremely essential sector. Um, I'd like to move on to Roger, Roger Guy uh, next. Roger's got a couple of questions, but I thought, Roger, could you ask the question on on Scotland, if that's okay? Okay, hello, Alma. Yeah, Hi. from our group, actually, it was just, just brought up and, and we were discussing how we are now very much aligned to Scotland um, and saying what lessons can we learn from the Scottish experience and so and, and around assessment in particular. Um, and, it's, and it's almost in, in the generic sense, what do we need to be doing more of? What do we need to be doing less of? And how do we move the, the rudder now to ensure we don't waste time in the process? Yeah, thank, thanks. I mean, uh, as you know, I, I'm an advisor to, to Scottish Government, so I have to uh, couch my response in, in careful terms. I mean, I think that there are lessons, of course, that Scotland can learn from Wales. Um, and, and I think one is the co-construction of the curriculum and the way in which we've managed to, to move that curriculum forward on, on the basis of the professional engagement. And I think they're the learning is both ways. I mean, when I'm in Scotland, we talk quite a lot about Wales and the collaborative work that we're doing here. Um, and when, when, when I'm in Wales, we talk a lot about, you know, the Scottish curriculum and the changes to assessment. 
And you will know at the moment that what's happening in Scotland is they're looking very carefully after the OECD report on curriculum for excellence. They are now looking very carefully at their assessment processes in an attempt to realign them to curriculum for excellence and bring them closer to what the young people cover in that curriculum. And I think the, the main lesson, therefore, is to ask ourselves the question, our assessment processes, our examinations, given the new curriculum, are they still fit for purpose? And if not, then what do we need to change uh, in order to make them way more aligned to uh, the demands of a new curriculum? So I'm not an assessment expert, but it seems to me an obvious thing to, to, to focus upon is if we've got a new curriculum, we've got new pedagogies, then we really need to look hard at the assessment process and ensure there's a really good fit between the curriculum and the assessment. Can I just come back on that? Because, and then again, it's just with your advice, really, in the sense of five years ago, that was the case, wasn't it? We didn't really have a strategy for assessment. We had the broad um, principles. And we're now quite a long way down the line and we still, most people are saying, yeah, it's great, but what are we doing around assessment? Yeah. Um, and how is it? Because if, if we don't get track of the assessment, net, if it takes another five years before we have some clarity, then there would be concern that, that, that the whole thing may well um, start to dilute, if you like, and, and that, that it may be rudderless. Um, and, and I guess if you're talking about this sort of systems leadership, what do the systems leaders need to be doing if you're going to co-construct it? Because if it's got to come from you know the assessment, what do we need to be doing to facilitate the outcome which we want? Yeah, and I think I think you're right that the two things need really to go in parallel. I mean, assessment can't can't follow curriculum development; it, it has to go hand in hand. And I think one of the things, one of the lessons from Scotland, of course, and the OECD mentioned this, is the fact that the assessment processes were not fully aligned to the curriculum development and they were somewhat behind and, and, and that caused a little bit of friction in the system and, a, and of course some difficulty for schools. So I think there was one message and, and maybe Welsh Government should be answering this, not me, but it seems to me that, that the uh, changes to assessment have to be aligned to the changes in curriculum and we can't be out of step because as you rightfully say, if we are out of step and assessment is playing catch up, then schools are in a, a, a tricky position in terms of making sense of a curriculum where the assessment process are not, are not 100% clear. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Jock Roger. And I, I'd love to sort of uh, uh, allow you a follow-up, but uh, we're really tight on time. And we are coming, unfortunately, to the last question um, before um, Alma's uh, gets the opportunity to um, to, to sum up um, um, the, the session today. We've had two um, very similar sort of questions um, uh, around the TLR system. So uh, I don't know if it'd be possible to bring Jane Woolcock up on screen so she can ask her question, but I know there's been another question very similar from Gail. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you, Alma. Um, as always, loads and loads of food for thought. Um, uh, yeah, I think I've got another crush on you as well. So you, your fan mail is with you today. It, it, it's, it's worth doing these presentations, clearly for the Academy, because you get two crushes in one day. I mean, how good is that? Great for well-being. Um, we had a very interesting discussion in our group. It, it wasn't so much of a, of a question as more as an, of an observation. Um, we just felt that the TLR system uh, is, is really a barrier 
for uh, uh, our newly qualified staff um, uh, and, and whether there is scope to look at a system, maybe starting within our own schools of, we know there's a protection there, but um, maybe looking at going forward, now is the time to initiate this change and maybe look at um, uh, having a, a system where there isn't the, the TLR with a monetary value, uh, mm. because that has got a barrier in itself. Um, yeah. But looking at um, different innovative ways to encourage everybody to feel accountable and responsible and want to drive change in their own way without it having to be linked with hierarchy um, and you can't do it because you know you're an NQT and therefore yeah. you haven't got the experience to be a leader um, or you're a te teaching assistant and, and therefore there's no way you could have um, greater responsibility in any way so you know trying to remove that um uh, the kudos around having that, that TLR system or even the hierarchy. Why have we got the middle leaders course? What, why is it called middle leaders? And then after you've done the middle leader, you can go on to the aspiring deputy course. You know, why have we got these structures in place? And isn't it better to have a system very similar to the old, um, well, not old because they're still about, but the modules that um, you can dip in and out of like part of the master's programme uh, because they have very similar ones now. We had Jane in our group who is in um, uh, a further education and has um, a, a system where there are modules that individuals drop into and participate in because they fit for purpose for that particular individual at that time. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot in there, Jane, what, you, what you've said. And, and, and of course, you are right that as soon as you put military value onto responsibilities, then then that becomes a barrier because the people automatically feel, well, that's your responsibility. You get paid for that, right? Um, I, I often say to, uh, to teachers, you know, and, and school leaders like yourself is, what's the most important issue in your school and who's best place to lead on that? And the answer sometimes is, it's not the person with the responsibility or the payment. It's the newly qualified teachers, somebody with the expertise to, to do that. But you've also spoken, I think, uh, to the other issue, and that's about the, the courses that are really uh, specific to middle leadership or senior leadership. And what if you don't fall in that category? What if you want to be a teacher leader? What if you just want to be a system leader? And, and I think the, the problem with those sort of age and stage courses is that they, they don't allow the flexibility. And as my good colleague Dylan William uh, says you know it's all it almost implies you've done the course so now you're good to go forever whereas we know that that's not the case that teachers need ongoing professional learning and development and so do leaders you may be aware Jane that um, the national masters was launched uh, this this month and that national masters has a leadership pathway and that leadership pathway will include a new module on system leadership and we're hoping to, to work with the academy around that module. module. But in a, same, in a sense, what we're trying to get to is exactly that sort of flexibility that you were outlining, where it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of professional learning. There's a mixture of, of rich opportunities for leaders at all levels uh, within the system. So I think really it, 
your question is a really good place to end because you've highlighted and consolidated the limitations of the current professional learning offer in Wales. Jane, thank you very much uh, for that question. And um, uh, that's it, I'm afraid. That's all the time we have for questions today. So, Alma, um, thank you very much for that. And um, I'm passing it over to you once again now to to uh, to summarise and um, to, um, to to bring, bring things to a close before passing on to Tegwen. Thanks, Trevor, and thanks to everyone for listening and for the questions. And my apologies if I haven't got, you know, neat answers to everything. Um, but I, I think in many respects, it's brilliant that we're having these conversations and they're, they're open conversations. So as I said earlier, you know, professional trust and trusting the profession is key to, to any system improvement. And if I can just reflect on, on Wales for a moment, and these are my concluding comments, I guess, because I am in the system uh, and I am part of the system, hopefully not part of the problem. But it seems to me that if you look externally uh, at Wales, and some of my international colleagues have commented on this, it is clear that Wales is a system on the move. Uh, it, It is not a complacent system. It is not a system that's wedded to accountability. That was the wrong driver. We know that. You only have to look at England to know that competition, accountability are the wrong drivers. We're now in a position where we've got a great opportunity to build upon the co-construction around the curriculum. I mean, when I tell my international colleagues that the curriculum was co-constructed and the profession was so so intimately involved in that, they're aghast because normally curriculums are devised by governments or policymakers or civil servants and sort of handed down. So I think we've got a huge opportunity in Wales. And I think the world is watching, to be honest. I think they're interested in what this small, and we are a small system, which is a good thing in many respects is able to do, and we are definitely uh, punching above our weight in what we're, in our aspirations. Yeah, there are still issues around assessment. There are still issues about some of the structural barriers, but I think that there are way more positives than, than, than negatives. We are undoubtedly going in the right direction as a system. And I think this uh, dismantling of some of the structural barriers, the ongoing collaboration, the focus on the learner, the focus on the right thing, uh, focusing on equity has to be uh, has to be at the heart of everything we do, and I think the National Academy is is part of the way in which we can build uh, leadership capacity even more within the system to deliver even more for young people. So very finally, I'm, I I remain very proud of the Welsh education system. I remain very proud of the schools, of the teachers, of the leaders, of the youth workers who on a daily basis are doing the heavy lifting of ensuring that every young person in Wales uh, is able to succeed, irrespective of their background, irrespective of their uh, location, irrespective of their postcode. And one of the final things I will say, and I said this uh, in 2007, uh, success for every child in every setting. That's our aspiration in Wales. That's what we will achieve. And I'm hugely proud to be part of the system that feels optimistic, even despite COVID, COVID, optimistic about the future and and ready to go with new ideas. But we need our system leaders to help us along the way. So um, on that note, can I just thank everyone for listening? And uh, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing and 
it's been a pleasure to to talk to you this morning. Gobeithion eich bod wedi mwyn hair bennod hon o bodlediad yr Academy Arwynyddiaeth. Tan ysgrifiwch ar Spotify, podlediadau Apple neu Google a pheidiwch byth â cholli penod. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Academy podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts and never miss an episode.